0: Um, have your Bible, or actually you can just follow in the order of worship. We're going to be in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. James chapter 4. I was out last week, and uh, you were in the very capable hands last week, and I heard encouraging things. And was encouraged myself. I got to worship with a sister church of ours that's pastored by a friend of mine that's in uh, downtown Washington, D.C., and was just I don't know, it's just very exciting to see other things God is doing in different spots. And, uh, but it's good to be back. It's great to be back in downtown Greenville. And uh, we're going to be in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. I know you were in Genesis last week, but two weeks ago was, um, we were following through in, in James chapter 4. And if you were here, you might remember this because it was kind of a, a jarring thing that James did... In the previous passage that comes right before this in James's letter, he called his readers adulteresses, and he told them that they were double-minded. And as we read this text, I want you to notice at the beginning, it's just two verses, but notice at the beginning of it, he goes right back to calling them brothers, and he's been doing that all through this letter, saying, brothers, 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 my brothers, my beloved brothers. Calls them adulteresses, says that they're double-minded, and immediately he reverts back to calling them brothers. And here's what I want you to see. The fact that he does that, in some ways, is the point of these verses. The fact that he does that is an application of the very thing that he is wanting us to do and his readers to do. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Amen. Let's ask God to bless our time in the Word. Our Father, we ask again, as the psalmist prayed, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever read any Walker Percy, southern writer, uh, Walker Percy. He, uh, he has a little piece in one of his books. It, I think he calls it a thought experiment. And in this thought experiment, he says, picture this. Picture a married couple. And they're, they're standing, let's say, in front of the garage of their house. And they've gotten into a fight. And, uh, and, and things are escalating. And it's just reached that point where now, you know, the spouse has become an adversary. And just, I mean, you're going to be right, whatever it takes to be right. And, like, you know, I will crush you in this argument. So, and again, I know that's hard for some of us to imagine that ever happening, it's a thought experiment. But as they're doing so, as they're fighting, Walker Percy says, all right, now all of a sudden, shots ring out from an unseen gunman who who is somewhere in front of the house, and this gunman is shooting at the couple. He says, now, what will they do? Instantaneously, what will they do? They will grab one another together. You know, They will go behind the thickest part of the car. They'll hold on to one another. And what will immediately happen? There'll be this deeply felt sense of, you are not my enemy. You know, I love you. That is the enemy. This unseen assassinate, that's the enemy. And you know, that's the thing about disagreements, about seeing things uh, differently with any other person, but especially those closest to you. You can begin to feel it so deeply that it changes how you perceive the person as if they have become the enemy. Someone that I I claim to love, somebody that I claim to be, you know, have, have sort of hitched my wagon to, it seems like you're the adversary. Because feelings are so intense when you don't like something, or you feel like somebody dropped the ball, or they didn't live up to an expectation, or you disagree. And James is saying this, that's going to happen in the body of Christ. As we've said over and over and over, this is not just a generic manual for generic people's relationships. It is a, it's by a Christian written to Christians for Christian living. It's about life in the body of Christ. And he's saying this, there's something in us where you can look up at somebody whom Jesus has made your brother or your sister. And what did we just talk about? Adoption. Adoption into a real family with real changed family dynamics. You can get sideways with a brother or sister and it feels like this person is the enemy. This person is my adversary. And James says this, when you do that, for all intents and purposes, you have ceased to be a brother, you are a judge. Now, here's what I want to look at this morning. How do brothers become judges? How do judges go back to being brothers? And let me say this. Just because of the text, when it says brothers, if, in fact, if you've got a Bible open, you, you might have a marginal note to this effect. When it says brothers, that mean, that's an inclusive term. That means brothers and sisters. So if I say brother or him, hear it as gender inclusive. Because if I say him or her, brothers and sisters, every time it's going to get clunky. So just hear that, gender inclusive. All right, how do brothers become judges? First off, James makes a claim here. He gives an imperative, don't do this, but then he makes a claim. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now that that verb of speak evil against, it's used a few times in the New Testament, kind of has a spectrum to it. It could be something as public and as robust as like slander. I mean, like the kind of thing you could sue someone for doing. Just out and out, slander. But it, it could be, and often is, something that's a lot more uh, behind the scenes. What we might call just kind of grumbling or grudges. Okay, so it's a term that includes all that. And he says, don't do that. But then he makes a theological claim. Now, what is it? The one who speaks against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. Now what law is he talking about? The law. The law of God. Catch what he just said. This is a big claim. He says, if you speak against a brother, a fellow Christian, that is tantamount to speaking against the law of God. If you judge a fellow Christian, you have judged the law of God. Now, granted, you, know, you might be thinking, all right, I get it. Like, I probably shouldn't judge or, or murmur against you know, a fellow Christian, but can you really say that that equals let' put a big equal sign there that it equals judging God's law. How can James say that? Look in verse 12. Because here's another theological reminder. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. And who's he talking about? He is talking about God Himself. Now, in a sense, let, let's, let's do it time out. Let's define our terms. What is a brother? From James's point of view, from Scripture's point of view, especially the New Testament, what is a brother? It's not just a neighbor. It's someone different. Here's what a brother is. A brother is somebody who was created by God. And this person has broken the law of the only lawgiver, the only true judge. And what that brings is a condemnation. And that's something that the lawgiver and judge has has cards on the table from the very beginning that this is something that brings punishment and we even get the term destruction. A brother is somebody who was made by the lawgiver and judge, answers to the lawgiver and judge, has fallen short of the requirements and broken the requirements and the law of the lawgiver and judge. So what happened? Well, you've got this lawgiver and judge who's able to destroy But he loves to save. He's not just able to save, but he he loves to save. How does he do that? How can he he be a judge and a savior? You know, as I was looking at this, I thought about um, a scene in the first Narnia story The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's where one of the Pevensey children, Edmund, has been treacherous, he's been a traitor. And so there's this big powwow that's held between Aslan and his his people and the White Witch and her people. And the White Witch comes along, and and here's what she says to Aslan. She says, have you forgotten the deep magic? And deep magic is capitalized. Aslan says, let us say I have forgotten it. Tell us of this deep magic. Tell you. Tell you what is written on that very table of stone which stands beside us. Tell you what is written in letters deep as a spear is long on the trunk of the world ash tree. Tell you what is engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. And so what she's saying is, Aslan, you know that there's this deep magic... And that deep magic says that if someone is treacherous, I get to shed their blood. And you know what happens if the deep magic is broken. Now, Edmund's sister, Susan, she's standing beside Aslan, as this is being discussed. She's never heard of this. And she says, Aslan, can't we, I mean, you won't, will you? Can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? Work against the emperor's magic? said Aslan turning to her with something like a frown on his face. And C.S. Lewis writes, And nobody ever made that suggestion to him again. And what's it saying is that you've got, in Narnia, in this allegory, Aslan is God the Son. And there's this character that you never really meet in the stories, but he's referred to, and it's Aslan's father. The emperor beyond the sea Who established how things work in Narnia, this deep magic, and you cannot violate it. Now, okay, I'm not advocating sorcery. All right, here's my obligatory Presbyterian qualification. I'm not advocating sorcery. Good, great. Good to know that. But it's like there is really a deep magic. The justice of God has to be satisfied, you can't just turn the switch off. But he's able to save. He loves to save. How does he do that? you know how he does it? James had a front row seat to this growing up with Jesus. The lawgiver became a lawkeeper. He showed up. He's fully God. But he showed up just as mortal as any human being made in the image of God. And he becomes a law keeper. And here's what happens at the end. Because, if I can put it this way, of the requirements of the deep magic, the, the true deep magic. He gives to his people the reward for always keeping the law. So he's the one man who could stand before the law giver and judge. And not be judged and not be destroyed but walk in on his merits. He's the only one who could ever do it. He gives to his people the credit for the law keeping and he takes on himself the destruction. And that's what we call the cross of coming under the very wrath of God. Now, okay, so back to the question. What is a brother? A brother is someone who says, that is what I believe. What you just said, that's what I believe. That is what I believe at the hand of God is true of me. And what that means is then, the deep magic is satisfied. The, the, the just, legal demands of God, they're satisfied. You know, we sing about that a lot. I mean, just a few weeks ago we sang um, by John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. We sang a song called, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. And in the first stanza, it says about Jesus, He has hushed the law's loud thunder. It's this picture of like Mount Sinai and the demands of the law saying, Guilty, you've fallen short. You haven't lived lived up to the demands of the law of God. And Jesus hushes the law down. Because He keeps it for His people. It says, He's quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Stop being a scary mountain. And then later, in, in, uh, in the song, it says, When through grace our hope in Christ is... That's a little bit stilted, but... When by God's grace you believe in Christ... Justice smiles and asks no more. Justice smiles and asks no more. That means if you're in Christ... Please don't ever ask yourself, if you're going through a hard time, am I being punished? You will never be punished. You may be disciplined as a child of God, but all 100% of the punishment that we deserve, past, present, future, went on Jesus. But brothers become judges when they look at that, and what this brother claims to believe and say, well, okay, justice is satisfied, but I don't know if I am. There's something about you I don't like. And usually it, it runs along the lines of preferences. You know, some people some people are traditional in their preferences. Some people are non-traditional. Some people are pre-Beatles. Some people are post-Beatles. I've got to tell you this too. I, this, this is loosely related to the sermon. This past Monday, when I was flying back, I was in the uh, Baltimore airport, you know, kind of serves the D.C. area, and I was eating lunch before a flight, and um, they're playing rock music, and and, uh, they're playing the Beatles song. uh, And I saw, when I saw her standing there, and it got to the point of the song where it says, I couldn't dance with another, and about ten different people in the restaurant at the same moment went, "Woo!" I thought, those are post-Beatles people. Not pre-Beatles people. But, you know, some people, traditional, non-traditional. Uh, some people, they want less programs in a church. Some people want more programs in the church. Some people, they, uh, if, if they're parents of children, they uh, spank their children. Some people, they say, we don't spank, we do the time-out thing. Some, it, I mean, there's just, it runs along the lines of preferences. Now, it's one thing to have a preference. Now, everybody's got them. But it's when you start to fill in this sentence that brothers turn into judges. It's when, okay, now justice has been satisfied. The law of God has been satisfied. But you look at somebody who has a different preference, a different way of doing things, on a disputable matter, and you say, You know what? You put your kids in public school because... And now it's not just the disagreement about how to do things. It's now you know the motive. You home you homeschool kids because you won't dress up during worship because you're too formal when you come to worship because you vote that way because that's a judge. And James says this, when you do that, you you are now sitting in judgment on the law of God itself, which is crazy enough as to be judging God himself. At least in a couple of ways. Number one, you've said, well, I guess technically the law of God was satisfied through Jesus' work for this person, but maybe the law did not require as many specifics as it should. And I know them. I know how important they are. I know how big a deal it is that you disagree. But the other way, and this is the major way, is that when we do that, something that just runs part and parcel with that is we begin to withhold affection. Which means that we're not loving. Which is a violation of the law of God. That what did Jesus say was the second most important commandment? behind love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when any of us say, well, I mean, I don't hate them, but yeah, I kind of withhold some affection. What we, whether we're willing to acknowledge it, we are saying, I don't have to love that person as myself. Which means we are saying, I don't have to obey the second greatest commandment. Which means we're saying, I will decide which laws I keep and which ones I don't have to keep. Which means we are saying, I am over the law. James says, that that is madness. Madness. Uh, I want to say this just as simply and honestly as I know how to say it. The great Enemies of Downtown Presbyterian Church are not the people in the room. And if we get sideways with someone, it can begin to feel like this person is the great problem. This person is my adversary. The great adversaries of Downtown Presbyterian Church are the unholy Trinity, the devil the world, and the flesh. The devil has already been addressed in James. And again, he is not viewed as a mythic figure in the Scriptures, neither by the apostles, neither by the prophets, not by Jesus himself. He's viewed as a real being, an ontological being. The world, that does not mean good planet Earth, but it means this global system of rebelling against God and His ways. And that system manifests itself in some very immoral ways and in some very uh, moral ways. In some very outwardly wicked things and in some really feel-good moral things. And the flesh. And the flesh is not our material existence. It's not skin and bones and muscles and organs. It's this residue of what Christians used to be that is still flaring up and showing itself in how we act. Those are the great adversaries of our church. Those are the lone gunmen shooting into, into into the house. And of you individually, and of me individually, those are our enemies. The Apostle Paul says this explicitly, our war is not against flesh and blood. Our war is not against flesh and blood. But I tell you what, when Christians feel things different, um, when they feel things deeply and they come to differing opinions, it can feel like my war is with you or your war is with me. And James says, that is judgment. That's when you cease to be a brother and you become the judge and it's crazy. So we need to ask this question, how do judges become brothers? Uh, look in, <laughs> th- th- this is so simple and it's so ingenious. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, I thought about that. Because it keeps saying brother, 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 brother. And he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? And th- this is so ingenious of James. What he just gave a head nod to was where the second gr- greatest commandment comes from. It's in the book of Leviticus. If you go look it up where that actual quote comes from, guess what the whole verse says. It's Leviticus 19, 18. It says, Do not take vengeance or grumble against. Now, vengeance could be like you go after somebody with an axe. Grumbling could just be the kind of ran, ran, ran that we do behind closed doors. Do not take vengeance. I'll put my axe down. Do not take vengeance... Or grumble against the sons of your own people, the brothers. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And when he says neighbor, I say, come back to sanity. And here's the thing. If I have this impulse where I've gotten pretty good at looking at people saying, what, what are you doing? And why are you doing that? Like, I'm not just going to figure out what you're doing. I'm going to figure out the motive for what you're doing, and I will diagnose it. What if that impulse... What if we don't have to get rid of it? What if there's actually a use for it? What if the use is, rather than aiming it out, is do what? Aim it in. So self... Why are you so mad about everything? Why, why, if they dress that way, or they do that with their child, or they take a different approach to that, why are you so upset? Because this is something about you. And that's where the scrutiny goes. Uh, A little over 100 years ago, something amazing happened in Korea. You know, at that point it wasn't North and South Korea. And this is incredible. It happened in Pyongyang, which is now the capital of North Korea, which is one of the most closed societies because of how things unfolded in the last century. But in 1907, after years of missionary work and years of extended prayer meetings where Christians came together and prayed, God, do something huge here. Do something huge here. That at a prayer meeting of missionaries and a few Korean Christians, witnesses said, prayer burst out. And and witnesses said it it had this sound to it, almost like the tide of the ocean coming and going, just the volume and the pitch of it. And that after that time of prayer, that Korean men, now, now keep in mind, Asian culture honor culture, save face. It is not a culture that values apologizing or humbling yourself. That men, because of the work of the gospel, and when I say men, I mean males, the work of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit at that prayer meeting began to go to one another and say, I'm sorry. To apologize for these old grudges, these old grievances, these old fights where they got sideways about something, and on the heels of that, the Holy Spirit burst on that community like a bomb. I don't mean hundreds of conversions, thousands of conversions. I mean, there are tons of Korean churches in the United States, much less Korea, and they're almost all in the South now. But those are the aftershocks of what happened in that meeting, and what did it look like, Judges became brothers again. And that instead of aiming the scrutiny out, the scrutiny came in and they were forced to say, I am sorry. I am sorry. And y'all, here's how real this is. I know that the applications about the Christian life are bigger than our local church, but we're talking in this community. And here's, here's how... Brass tacks, this may be. It may be that there's someone in this room right now that you have had a tiff with. And that maybe, even as you're hearing this, you know at an intellectual level, I know it's wrong. I know it's not that big a deal. But still, at a heart level, it feels like he or she is my adversary. And I want to exhort you to do something. I want you to watch them come to this table this morning, track them. And I want you to say to yourself, we eat of one loaf. We drink of one cup of blessing. And be reminded, this is not my adversary. This is crazy. This is my brother. Or this is my sister. And maybe that means there's going to have to be a follow-up hug. And if you get hugged after this, then don't equate that with, they must have hated me for the last three months. Don't do that. But it may mean a follow-up hug or letter or lunch or apology or something, but we have got to do that with one another because this is not the enemy of the church. Unless you plant your flag and act like one, opposing the Word of God, opposing the officers of the church, opposing the gospel itself, unless you do that, We are not the enemies. The enemies are the world, the devil, and the flesh. Man, this afternoon, we've got an opportunity to eat your lunch, take your holy nap, and and relax, I hope. But we have got the opportunity to be on our knees and to say, Oh Lord, I want to resist the devil. As James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And there's some things he likes that I like too. And I I need you to change my heart to resist him. There are ways that I have buddied up way too much to the world and I have become its buddy. And James has just told us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Change my heart. But Lord, enable me to, to take these honed skills of mine of scrutinizing and to turn them in on myself with the light of your word, not just preferences and to repent where I need to repent. And that could be nothing but good for all of us. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have played the judge. We have played the judge. I know that we've confessed our sin together in worship, but we would confess this too, that we have played the judge with one another. Who are we? But thank you for reminding us. Thank you for reminding us of the insanity of our own sin. And would you shed great mercy upon us? Would you grant us repentance? If there's someone here who, who has only seen you as judge angry lawgiver and doesn't see that you are able and willing to save, would you change hearts this morning to come to the one who can bear sins and save? We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.